Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most astonishing metropolis between Omaha and Salt Lake. This week, Denver's creative vitality index and other useless stats to prove our city has a vital creative class. Also, an anthology of rap straight out of Boulder. A CU professor has co-edited a rap anthology that's come under fire. Um, and our third topic, holiday office parties in Denver. Where's the best and the worst place to have one, assuming you're employed? Uh, with us in studio, Jared Jakang Mayor of FaceTheState.com, Joel Warner of Westward. Uh, also, we have special guest Ron Doyle, online editor. He is a uh, contributor to Psychology Today, a blogger there and a local freelance writer. Uh, I, am, of course, am John Dicker, washed-up author and journalist. Let's get straight to the rap, uh, the anthology of rap. This has come out. It's like a 900-page tome. Uh, we couldn't actually physically lift one into the studio today. But it has come under fire largely for its uh, abundant gaffes in terms of transcribing lyrics. Joel, why don't you, uh, why don't you give some more uh, context here? Uh, I think the book just recently came out. Um, it's co-edited by a CU Boulder professor, Adam Bradley, if I have, if I have it correct. And it's kind of supposed to be like the authoritative like anthology on rap. And immediately it started getting national attention. Uh, the New York uh, Magazine book editor kind of acted like it was the greatest thing he'd read in several months. NPR had a big, uh, big feature about it. But then right after that, uh, you know, comments started coming out with people with questions about the accuracy of the lyrics. I'm familiar with problems. I know how to solve them. Semi automatically, a trade revolving. Shoot them up, problem. Wow, that's just like E.E. E. Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is it? I mean, I don't want to. The book said it was Luger Trey Revolvum, which is, you know, using a Luger to kind of resolve it. But, uh,. According to the critics, is actually semi-automatically or Trey Eight Revolvum. Trey Eight is, is a name for a thirty-eight handgun. Mm, all right. So here's my take. First of all, this is a situation where finally academia has gotten its hands into rap, and what they've done is the exact same thing they've been doing with Shakespeare for the last five hundred years: is they've taken this oral tradition and they've put it on paper, and then they argue about what they really said. I mean, when when they transcribed Shakespeare's works into writing, they were all from his scribbled screen, you know, from his stage notes. They, they still don't know exactly what he said. And anybody that lived 500 years ago knew he was changing what he was saying anyway. It, I mean, no two performances were exactly the same. So I think rap is the exact same way, too. I bet both are right. 50 Cent probably has no clue what he said. Well, to be, to be fair, there were some instances where several rappers have sat down with uh, one of the writers from Slate and said, "No, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. No, that's wrong." Yeah, yeah. Grandmaster Kaz, he did, he did sit down and say, "No, that's not what I said," and that that's absolutely true. And but he then went through and pointed out things that he thought were wrong with other people's lyrics, the way he perceived them. I, it's really tricky for me. I, it's hard to understand. First of all, like like you asked, uh, is it really important? Because it's an oral tradition that's going to change anyway. They're going to wrap that song differently at the next concert anyhow, so who cares? In your opinion, you know, it's almost a good thing then, you know, that we now have this work uh, kind of mistakes and all, in part because these theoretical mistakes will kind of inspire new debate 
a new inspection of the. Oh, this almost absolutely guarantees that there are going to be five anthologies of rap in the next 10 years that are going to come out and they're going to have their revised editions. I think the editor did it on purpose just so he has a re- an excuse to get another revision. Wow. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, to the larger point, how much of this is academic uh, hucksterism slash careerism? Hey, I'm the guy who owns, I own the uh, hip-hop in the academic sort of milieu. And part of this is interesting, and it's, it's rap's kind of trajectory of gaining uh, more credibility and clout as an art form. And I, I respect that. Is What's going to have more influence on that? Jay-Z's new book, which really goes into a lot of, the, lot of detail in, in terms of how rhyme schemes have evolved, from what I understand, and is selling well and apparently is getting great reviews, or this 900-word tome. <laughs> a, a, and B, there's certain that what the New, um, New York uh, magazines, their review of it was pretty interesting because the guy admitted that he didn't know anything about rap and that reading the lyrics was fascinating and that he placed certain rappers like there's certain like he had no use for Biggie Smalls just reading his lyrics. Some of that is quite understandable. But how much of rap and how much of even rock music, for that matter, do we give a shit about reading on paper ever? Why can't we also appreciate it just as this kind of literary form? I mean, can't I, we, I mean, I, we appreciate lots of other kind of forms of artwork, you know, at many different levels. So why not? Well, we can also appreciate it musically. We can also appreciate it just from kind of the literary approach as well. Oh, I, I like both ways. You know, I, yeah, I, get, I gave a little diss and I'm saying, yeah, I think, I think the mistakes were almost intentional so he can get himself a second edition. But I, I do. I, I like this sort of thing. I'm the sort of person that would want to read the lyrics. But you reference Jay-Z. Jay-Z says he doesn't write lyrics down, ever. And, and for us to write them down, is that almost a disservice to it? And then the, the New York Times, the New York Magazine uh, writer who had openly admitted, I've never listened to this before, NPR actually took him and did an interview where they played the music for him, and he went, whoa, <laughs> whoops. You, you know, it, you don't get as much. And he, he pointed out that what you get on page is very, very different. It's the same thing like whenever spoken word artists try to print their poems, they wind up doing all these crazy things with font sizes and moving the words around because they can't figure out a better way to express what they're doing on the stage and it just doesn't translate onto the paper in normal 12-point Times New Roman font. See, I haven't seen, none of us actually seen this book, so it's hard for us to fully comment on it. One thing that, you know, just reading about this controversy, one thing that seems to me that would have been relevant that might be interesting for like a second book or whatnot in that a lot of these discussions and controversies now are about kind of understanding these kind of localized place names and localized kind of almost balkanized different kind of instances of street culture that have evolved. In some ways, I almost wish that this book had had like footnotes oh, or it, like it, a later it, it version of footnotes footnotes badly. Saying, hey, this, you know, this is a reference to this building, you know, in Brooklyn, et cetera, et cetera. I think That's that would be a really kind of cool addition. Every, everything I've read about it is there's general consensus it needed footnotes badly. Um, in the same way, you know, not right now, like I've said before with Shakespeare, you have to have footnotes to understand Shakespeare 500 years later because the language is totally different. And for, for me, white guy, I have to have that. All right. Well, let's, um, let's move on. There has been a series of studies uh, of Denver's Creative Vitality Index, um, which, to the best of my knowledge that I could glean, is uh, a nonprofit called Weststaff, the Western States Art Federation, has been hired by the Denver Economic Development Council. Would that be correct? Uh, 
Either that or create Denver, which is kind of a part of the mayor's office. And it's a yeah, it's a series of studies ranking the number of arts jobs and the number of I don't even get this, but it's a study that produces another study, and they're always ranking Denver really high. What the hell is the point of this, and and what does it mean? I mean, I read studies like this uh, basically that the city didn't want to actually spend real real money or do anything of real use or value for the artistic community, which has been clamoring forever for some help from the city. So instead, they had to come up with their own ranking that says, oh, oh, wait a second, things are fucking fantastic already in Denver for the artists, so why should we be uh, complaining? What, what is the, I mean, in what sense has the art, artist, artistic community been clamoring for help from the city, like in what, in what way? Um, I think probably the most common example is that some cities kind of help artists uh, purchase their own space. So they aren't kind of slaves to these kind of increasing lease rates. They can actually kind of, kind of purchase and own these kind of creative spaces around town. Um, and Denver has steadfastly refused to, you know, to help kind of artists kind of deal with real estate. And then, I mean, my take on reading some of this was that this is kind of Richard Florida. People have drank deep from the well of Richard Florida's Kool-Aid. <laughs> a Richard Florida is the kind of the urban uh, urbanist scholar who is now you know go gets like thirty five grand a pop to tell you that you need to make your city more diverse, at tolerant of gays, and attract uh, basically a very vague quote unquote creative class that can include anyone from a coffee shop owner to an IT consultant, and uh, he's been widely critiqued. Um, you know, there's a lot of critiques, especially from the left, saying that it doesn't mean shit if you don't have at least somewhat of an industrial base. And it's really about skilled workers, whether they work in a hospital or for uh, an art museum or an art gallery. Um, do you have a sense of that, Joel? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I really see this as kind of the modern day version of, of snake oil. In that, you know, in fact, one of my first jobs was basically working for a company that would create these type of rankings where they would take all these weird kind of stats, either from the census or whatnot, and create their own kind of ranking system, kind of based on whatever they want, and then sell it, you know, to all these different cities. I mean, I mean, they were like, West Staff now has created these, these creative vitality indexes for, like, 50 cities nationwide. The, the, the thing that jumped out immediately whenever I started looking at this, the website and all the statistics was, get your ranking here. And there was a place where you could immediately click. There was pricing and everything. It was very obvious that this was being sold to cities as a way to find out how they compete. Yeah. I, and it, Definitely the, snake, snake oil for the cities anyway. Yeah. Is the, end, is the end result that the Economic Development Corporation of a certain city can say, hey, we've been ranked 32nd, you know, blah, 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 and make that a pitch to certain, you know, whether they're trying to get an extension of the state university or trying to get something into their city that they wouldn't have otherwise. And sometimes I think that brings up kind of the bigger question, which is, you know, these kind of concepts of cities trying to kind of create these flourishing music scenes like we have in like Austin or, or Nashville or these great like art scenes that we've seen in New York or whatnot. I mean, it's these kind of like amorphous, like organic kind of concepts and you know cities are always trying to find kind of the secret equation to kind of to kind of recreating these kind of organically kind of grown communities and is that really even possible you know in some ways this is just kind of like because it's so it's such it's such an obscure kind of concept you know now we're seeing these companies that are, are going around selling these kind of make-believe solutions to like doing it right and, and making a lot of money and the other thing about richard florida is you know he would go and 
talk to like Elmira, New York, and by omission at least suggest that you know, you too can be like Boulder in in Central New York. And now he's kind of written it off and has come clean and said a lot of these communities are just dying. Like you can pay Youngstown, Ohio can pay me whatever thirty grand to speak. I'm not gonna be able to to make your city a new creative hub. And that that I find disturbing and sad, but probably more you know in line with reality. Now I have one thing to say that kind of kind of goes against my cynicism. You know, doing this research and I found out that. You know, now based on this Creative Vitality Index, this same company went and did kind of like a music-based Creative Vitality Index for Denver as well, the same kind of weird kind of mumbo-jumbo. Now, I was about to criticize that until I read about, I guess there's actually this music summit going on today, kind of, kind of based on this kind of, kind of music uh, Creative Vitality Index here in Denver, which is these kind of like kind of business seminars for bands and music producers, and I think it's like pretty low cost, and I think a lot of it's actually free. I think, and I have to say, you know what, you know that actually, you know, isn't that bad an idea. You know, instead of just having these weird rankings, you know, musicians really could use some help and support on the business side. So for the city to go and kind of create this kind of conference, this kind of this kind of seminar to help that, you know, I don't think you know that to me seems like a much more kind of practical and real world solution than kind of ranking ourselves. It, did, it does seem like one of the few instances where they're actually taking this and using it as a way to apply and help things out because music was one of the places that we ranked lower, right? Uh, I mean, we had lots of writers. We had lots and lots of web designers. I, personally, I'm excited because I'm the creative professional for hire. If Denver weren't this environment that was good for me, I wouldn't be able to do what I do for a living here. And yeah, uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York ranked higher, but I can't afford to live in those places. So I, I was actually kind of excited about it. I liked it. Um, it is yet again another one of those situations where Denver's trying to show why it's great instead of just being great. Uh, so that feels a little weird. But I don't know. I was I was kind of excited to know how many different writers are in town. That was that was cool to me. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm just curious what Denver, you know, what the city plans to do with this information, or if it's a means to it. Is it just so that they can have bragging rights that we are ranked, you know, higher than X, Y, and Z city? Uh, or is that is that information useful to getting you know, certain businesses to to bring jobs here? I I don't know. It seems to me like lately the debate about you know economic growth has uh, is kind of tied in with energy you know and technology, and so it's kind of it seems odd to be going and focusing on so primarily on creative quote unquote creative jobs. And when you look into Florida's you know definition of what a creative job is it's so vague as to almost be meaningless i i don't know i'm, I'm just, a cynic he's just uh, proselytizing the hipster culture that and well, that no, and that's about it like if you're a hipster if you if you wear lots of flannel you're creative oh well it's like if you're if you're an it manager you're in the creative class Ugh. and mm, no okay. no disrespect to it managers but is that is that really the same thing as being the art art or being the you know director of the Denver City Performing Arts Center or the you know Denver Film Society? Not the same job, you know, not the same not the same quote unquote class. Um, I think this is where you guys are supposed to say something about we're going to hear about this on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we should throw this out on Facebook. Do you think you have a creative <coughs> class job? Do you think uh, you're better off in Denver because of it? Does it really matter? Uh, and what the hell about about people who who make shit and fix us when we break our bones? I I, I feel like 
I want to attract those people as much as as some douchebag with a laptop like like me. <laughs> um, anyway, let's get on to our third topic. Which are we going to do? Are we doing Facebook uh, shoutouts or no? I just I noticed Jared brought that up on screen. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, office parties. Uh, Joel, this is a weird idea of yours. <laughs> why don't you? Why don't I, I just... had to come up with a third topic? I decided that we should talk about uh, Denver-based office parties. So um, my question was, if you guys had the wherewithal to throw a big holiday office party, what would the theme be, and where would you throw it? What What's our budget here? What, what, <laughs> you have you have at maximum fifty seven thousand dollars. Fifty fifty seven. Very fifty seven thousand dollars. <laughs> very precise. Okay. Not a lot about. Well, okay. In that case. No, There's a lot of money. You know, you know I this is a really awkward question for me because I work out of my home. I, my commute's from my bedroom, fourteen steps downstairs to my office. So I so would you never. Wish you had an office I would office never party. ever want to have an office party at my office. That's for sure. Uh, but you know, um, my wife works for the University of Denver, and they used to own the Phipps Mansion, and they used to have a holiday party there every year, and it was amazing. And that's where I would definitely want to have a party again if I could. But they sold the goddamn place, and now we can't go. Every year, I would get to go fill myself up with prime rib and gin and tonic, and then I would go take a tour of the mansion and find the chair that had the little Bill Clinton plate nameplate on it, and I would, you know, rub my bum in the Bill Clinton chair because this is where presidents How'd that make you feel? used to say it made me feel great. Okay. And I don't get to do that anymore. So Sorry, Ron. if I could do this, again, <laughs> if I could do that again, that would make me really happy. So I'd want to have the office party at the Phipps Mansion for sure. John, where do you have your office party? Uh, I'm hard-pressed for... And the theme. And what's your theme? The, the, office party too? the theme is escape for me. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I want it in a big room where there's multiple exits and multiple ways around people. That's what I freaking hate about any sort of work-induced function where you can get cornered in and you can't have any egress to either get out of the party or get to someone that you actually want to talk to. You to get out of the conversation that you're stuck in because there's no room to turn around and walk away. Right. So, I mean, for some reason, Mezcal, which I think is a very mediocre restaurant, um, came to mind, but I do like the layout of it. That has the kind of horseshoe bar. It has uh, tiers yes. on either side. It's actually phys- – I, I do like it as a space more than I like their food, which I oh, – uh, don't get me fucking started. Um, but th- that would be an example of, of a reason. And it's not – it's in my middle brow comfort zone of not too frou-frou and not too ghetto. And so that, that would be a place that I would I would recommend. So you want somewhere with lots of little pocket doors and rooms. You, you want a house party for your for your office party so you can get away from all your office mates. Really? Okay. My theme would be invite anyone that doesn't really work there so I don't have to talk about work at this party. That that would be the ideal theme for both an of, office party. Both your parties just sound completely depressing. I, say, <laughs> I don't want to go to either one of your parties. See, my party would, would freaking rock. Cause I would, All right. Break it down. Okay. See, I'd bring it back old school. <laughs> and my party would be about celebrating the birth of baby Jesus. It would truly be where you know you, you have to dress as one of like the wise men or the Virgin Mary, or maybe the baby like Jesus. You know, it's all about being very solemn. Actually, be like, hey, this is what holidays are supposed to be about. You know, you know, none of this PC bullshit about happy holidays. It's all about the birth. You know, basically all you can say is 
thank God for the birth of the baby Jesus. So, so would you have it at like St. Joe's Hospital in the in the mother and baby center? Where, well, that, no, like, that's you could have too. a live birth see, was, at your see, party. Thinking, that would be kind of fun. You know, that would be fun. That's a good idea too. See, see, I was thinking maybe like Chatfield because it, it's kind of like farm. Kind of oh, like yeah, there you go. Okay. You know, you know, I was trying to think of actual like manger here in Denver, four mile historic park. Do they have mangers? Oh, I'm sure they could build one for you. I don't know what a manger is, but <laughs> I think you need it for my party. It's like a feed trough. It's a feed trough. <laughs> Happy holidays. <laughs> yeah, to all the people who have office parties who have actual you know employment, yeah, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> I'll think about you when I'm in my basement. Let's get on. Speaking of, of that, my, that, that cheery note, uh, let's get on to love and hate. Uh, Ron, you're our guest. Why don't we start with you? Well, okay, so I have, I have one of each. Actually... You know, I've always said that the ultimate weather situation in Colorado would be snowing lots in the mountains and not snowing all in Denver, and it's finally happening, and I absolutely hate it. I I miss the snow. It's very awkward that it hasn't snowed very much at all yet, and I, I hate that. And then for my love, um, there's there's this Twitter account called Brain Picker. Her name's Maria Popova, and she just has the amazing tweets. Uh, what what are, what are they about? <laughs> oh, wow. you, you guys had to go there. I knew you would, too. What, what does she tweet about? Uh, just all sorts of things that are really interesting. I, 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 do, I have this system. I'm sure you guys really want to know how I read Twitter. But I, I go through, and as I'm reading things, because I've got like 4 million tweets, I go and star the ones that are interesting. And consistently, Brain Picker is the one that keeps coming up, popping up in my favorites. So Brain Picker, check it out. Word. Very good. Joel. Okay. I have some hate this week. I'm hating uh, the Denver Sewer Department for last Saturday putting a notice on my door saying, oh, by the way, we're doing some sewer work here this coming Monday, which means you cannot use any drains in your entire house from 7 a.m. and going on for 12 hours, which means no shower, no sinks, no disposal, no toilet for 12 hours. You know, this was put on a Saturday for the Monday, so you couldn't call anybody to say, yeah, uh, you know what? I don't want to go back a century in time for freaking my entire, like, work day. You're like, yeah. that, you're like that carnival cruise. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Basically, my, you know, my life was like the carnival cruise from hell. Yeah, Denver, Denver Sewer, you're not attracting the creative class. Yes. Attracting the creative ass. CBI's. Our creative Italian next just went down 0.3. <laughs> Denver Sewer, thank you very much. Jared, uh, do you want to talk on this podcast at all? <laughs> Jared is the Terminator X of this podcast. He's, he's only speaking with his hands. For, for all you rap illiterate retards, Terminator X was the DJ of Public Enemy. God damn it, do I have to school all of you. Uh, I will love uh, – I'll change uh, themes r- radically here. I'm actually going to love on the city of Denver, and this is pretty lame, but for taking its uh, pilot compost program and allowing people – because it was a test program. The city's broke. Instead of uh, dumping it, you can pay 50 bucks a year and dump your compost, uh, get one of the little bins. It's better than trying to do it yourself, which I tried, and I sucked at it. And also just another tip – you can just look in your alley. Someone's bound to be on the original pilot program. Dump all your compost there. No one's going to care. You heard it here first. That's all the compost shit we have time for this week. Uh, I am John Dicker. For Jared, the silent one, Joel, and Ron Doyle, we will see you on the web at DenverDietribe.com. Check out our Facebook page, our Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes. It's the easiest way to listen to this every week. Thank you guys so much. We're out. 